Today's episode is brought to you by Stage Door Manor. They are now accepting applications for their summer theater programs. You can find more information at stagedoormanor.com. You feel me coming. A new vibration. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. Today's episode is pretty amazing, you guys. We're doing it in two segments. First up, we have two-time Tony winner, five-time Tony nominee, and the object of my teenage obsession, Michael Cerverus, back on the show. Michael is back to talk about music and theater and an upcoming show he and his band are doing at the Sheen Center for Thought and Culture. The show is happening this Thursday, March 16th at 7.30. You can find information and tickets at sheencenter.org. I'm obsessed with Michael Cerverus. Here's our conversation. Hi, Michael Cerverus. Hello, how are you doing? I'm inappropriately close to you on a couch. This is perfect. Uh, you know, who's to define what inappropriate distance is, really? I'll take it. I'll totally take it. Um, we're here to talk about your music. Yeah, yeah. So you, are, okay, could, will you tell us about your band, The Accomplices? Before we get into the actual show you're doing, will you tell us how long you've had this band and, and like sort of how it came to be? Well, my, my regular band really is Loose Cattle. Um, Kimberly Kay and I have a... Uh, alt country band that uh, that has been playing now for God about five years or more I guess. Um, but for this particular concert, um, I partly because it's a more expanded musical palette than than what Loose Cattle did um, does. I had to add extra players to it, and also because unfortunately Kimberly's been. Uh, struggling with some difficult health issues. So she's out at the Cleveland Clinic and not able to be part of this. So so this is kind of, the accomplices have been sort of invented as my my band to play the Piety record. Um, the first version of the accomplices was down in New Orleans when I did a similar concert to this down there because I had recorded the record down there in New Orleans. Um, so a lot of the people who played on the record played it on that show um but up here it's going to be members of loose cattle and then other a number of other instrumentalists so i just like the idea of a of a free floating group of people basically anybody who picked up the phone when i called and said could you come do this (laughs) they are my accomplices (laughs) it's funny we were just having a separate conversation about like your early days as an actor in new york and you were saying that you thought you never imagined yourself in musicals. So I'm, I'm wondering if were you a, a singer who saw yourself like being in plays, but then having like music in another way? How, like, how did, how did having a band come to be for you? Um, I've been doing music probably as long as I've been acting, but they've always, or they've mostly been parallel, separate kind of lives. Um, and I expected that's the way it was going to be in the beginning. I mean, I had, I did choirs and stuff in school and my first band was in junior high. Um, it was not very good, but it was very loud, so that was the important thing. Um, and and I, but I had a very specific idea of what a musician was, and that I inherited from my father, who is a classically trained pianist and music educator, and taught in universities. And um, so my idea of who should call themselves a musician is somebody who's studied and trained for years and knows theory and reads music and. Um, and I hadn't really done that. I, I studied, my, my dad insisted that all of the three of us kids, um, should learn at least one instrument for a year and we could pick what that instrument 
was. And, and then at the end of that year, if we didn't want to continue it, we didn't have to. Um, he felt like he owed that to his, you know, his calling. So um, I started out on piano, but it's hard to learn piano from your dad at home. Um, then I, I picked up the violin and took violin lessons through my, my grade school. But, you know, in fourth grade, violin is not the coolest instrument to play. I wish I'd stuck with it because I love fiddle now, and I've kind of gone back and started to try to learn again. Um, but I switched to guitar and finished out, you know, the last six months of my year on guitar and then put it away for a couple of years and picked it up at some point and kind of retaught myself having a, a rudimentary knowledge from my lessons and the Mel Bay uh, guitar lesson book, um, but really sort of teaching myself then. And so I consider myself a, a largely self-taught musician, and I I learned by ear. I really developed my ear a lot because I would sit down and stick my ear in the in the stereo and, and figure out the guitar parts and the bass parts, and then I would come into band practices and teach the guys what I had figured out. Um, but I still don't really read, especially for... Uh, even for singing, I'm kind of relative. I can read relatively, um, which is a great disappointment to my father, I'm sure. Um, but so I, so I never thought of music as a profession because I thought, well, I can't think of it as a profession because I'm, I haven't, you know, given my life over to it completely. And yet I played music all the time, um, and it was really. Tommy where those worlds converged for the first time and even though I didn't play an instrument in Tommy um, I was singing the music that I had grown up listening to and and then over the years those things kind of crossed and converged a number of times Hedvig you know uh, even Sweeney Todd where I played guitar in that um, in John Doyle's production um, so so they have converged occasionally but but they've mostly been kind of separate things. And I've done, this is my second solo record, uh, Piety. Um, and I've had a number of bands. Alice Ripley and I had a band when I was doing Tommy that used wow. to play. It was me and Alice and her then-husband, Shannon Ford, and another friend of ours, John Jinks. And we used to go down on, we had a residency at Cheney, the the coffee house where Jeff Buckley, and it was around the time that Jeff was uh doing the you know the grace album and stuff so so we had a residency on on one saturday the the first saturday of the month Uh, we would go down after the matinee in the evening on saturday and go downtown and play another two and a half hours in this coffee house and we did a record that never got released Okay, I have to just ask you this question. So you, of course, have gone on to be one of the great actors of our time, but do you ever sit on the subway or, like, wake up in the morning and think, I was Tommy? 
<laughs> Just indulge me. Um, I don't know if I have, I, if I have that thought exactly, but I, I definitely was like, you know, Wayne's worlding out all the time through that period. Just like, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. That's Pete Townsend. We're playing, you know, we're singing together in O'Flaherty's on 46th Street. Or, you know, he he brought me out on the road to the West Coast to do some shows when he was doing a solo tour. And we did a, a little suite of songs from Tommy. So, like, I sang Tommy at the volume that it's generally done, wow. you know, with his amazing band. And... um yeah, I do. I do occasionally, sort of, and I think it happens more when I've just hit one of those, you know, cyclical lows that we all get in this business, where you're like, I guess maybe I peaked already. I guess you know, but then I think, well, but if I did, I peaked with you know being Tommy, so that you know that was okay. If that if that's if that was the height, then all right. I'm going to ask you more about your music in one second, but if you had to say, if you had to pick the great role of your career, what would it be so far? Well, I think I think part of it is it's often the thing that you most recently did because you're most recently invested in it. And I, I mean, I have between Tommy and Sweeney and Hedvig and, uh, you know, and Assassins and all these things, I've been part of some historic and amazing uh, groundbreaking things and and every one of them is is precious to me um and hopefully i'll get the chance to be part of you know groundbreaking things again in the future um but i kind of suspect that nothing may ever quite be what fun home was because of the convergence of this remarkable material being told in such a um uh idiosyncratic and unique and uh and uh groundbreaking way and and working with a company of people who you know while every cast feels like a family to one degree or another this was something even deeper i think because of the material itself and Allison Bechtel being part of of the process with us and and getting to know her brothers and feeling like we had a responsibility beyond just doing a play to, you know, telling these people who we knew, you know, their life. Um, but even beyond that, the fact of, of what we were saying and when we were saying it, um, that's only become more meaningful now when all of that is so, uh, disturbingly under attack um just when we thought we'd you know gotten to a place of safety in a lot of ways and and it's a whole host of issues you know lgbtq issues and uh just plain human decency and compassion issues um so i think i think the convergence of all those things doing something creatively uh so satisfying professionally so meaningful but most of all that seems part of uh doing something good for society and for the country and for the world and 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 the way people reflected that back to us in what it meant to them to be able to come and see that show um i i sort of don't imagine anything will ever quite be like that again 
peeling plaster, sagging roof, to missing stairs, a buckled wall. I'm fired up to do this, but on my own at all. So much damage, broken windows, pipes are shit, crap veneer. It's hours later, Jesus, I'm still standing here, still standing. Can you tell us about the album Piety? And then can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the show that you're doing on March 16th? Well, Piety, uh, I recorded down in New Orleans at uh, Piety Street Studios, which is uh, or was a fantastic studio in New Orleans that had been there for a number of years. It was kind of an that old school sort of studio where where time just sort of stops and and you're surrounded by people who just want to make something really beautiful and captured on record instead of trying to figure out you know what's the most marketable thing that we can do with this. Um, so Mark, I had gotten to know the studio and Mark through my friend Paul Sanchez, who, um, recorded a record called Nine Lives that was a song cycle, um, based on a book by Dan Baum about nine people in New Orleans from, uh, Hurricane Betsy to Hurricane Katrina, um, and their individual lives. And Paul wrote this beautiful song cycle and asked me to play one of the characters in it. And we recorded the the whole CD there. We were working for a long time to try to turn it into a stage piece, and uh, and, and that's kind of uh, in limbo at the moment. But the record remains, and it's a, a really beautiful record. So that was how I was introduced to the studio and to Mark. Um, at one point during conversations, he had worked uh, with Hal Wilner and a lot of these... Um, Lost in the Stars, he did that record that was a, a collection of Kurt Vile songs with a, a all who's who of of uh, musical guests. I think Michael Stipe is on it. Um, uh, just all kinds of people. And um, um, Marianne Faithful, I think, also. And so we got to talking one day about Kurt Vile, and he discovered that I had played Vile in Love Music, and then he got that uh, cast album and he said that he loved it and so he said and he knew that I wrote music and he said well, why don't you why don't you make a record here let's let's make a record together and I said great and he said give send me your demos and things and and I'll sift through them and see what uh, you know what we can work on so I sent him everything I had songs that were in pieces and songs that were completed and had been sort of recorded but never released and um, and he picked the the nine that he sort of uh, felt strongest about or had an idea about and and we and he said I want it to be really sort of string based and acoustic and um, so we started with just guitars and and kind of built it from there and then this uh, terrific musician Jim James. Peyton Walsh or Jimbo Walsh, as I know him, um, wrote these beautiful string arrangements. And it developed into this really lushly orchestrated folk record that's kind of, um, you know, if Nick Drake did a did a record in the South in America, you know, with, with some help from Elliot Smith, this is kind of the record maybe that it at least aspires to be. Palmetto trees Field where Buddy Bold has gone. 
find his grave. So you know that's that's the record, and and now I've I've been trying to to find opportunities to to recreate that live. I'm I'm used to playing in bands with you know a couple guitars, bass, and drums, and and I love doing that. But this is a really exciting chance for me to really sort of fill it all out. Um, and so we're playing the orchestrations the, from the record, and we have a string quartet and a woodwind player and keyboards, and uh, my friend John Graboff is on pedal steel and guitar, and, and then the other, Eddie and Eddie Zweibach and Lorenzo Wolf, who are the rhythm section of Loose Cattle, will be playing. Um, and uh, my friend Joe McGinty from the Losers Lounge will be playing keyboards and pianos. and um, So... It's going to be. We're going to play the record, you know, top to bottom in the first half, and then uh, the second act or second set will be um, some some covers, a few other songs of mine from from earlier records, and and then covers of of things, some with string accompaniment, some, and there will even be some some songs from my my career that people might recognize. Um, just last question. Uh, Broadway Con, I saw in the museum, you donated um, a jacket that had originally been owned and worn, I'm assuming, by Bruce Bechtel. How did you come into possession of that? And was he that skinny? <laughs> <laughs> he was. I think he was even skinnier than me, actually. Um, and he was taller. Um, but uh, I came into possession of it because of my friendship with uh, Allison's brother, Christian Bechtel, um, who... Uh, who I made friends with early on when they when he and John his brother came to see the show at the public the first time um and uh we had a great correspondence um wrote actual letters back and forth and uh he's a lovely guy and he in the same way that Allison was so generous with her the facts of her family's life um he was very generous, and he sent us or sent me boxes of matchbox cars that were the matchbox cars that he played with as a kid, so I brought them in and gave them to the kids in the show so some of the the matchbox cars in the show were christian's actual matchbox cars and then Allison gave me a couple of her father's ties, so the tie that I used for a long time um in the scene going to uh the names go out of your head really quickly. <laughs> anyway, when he's going to see the psychiatrist the first time, mm-hmm. um, uh, that was actually Bruce's tie. Um, and so, and Christian sent this jacket saying, you know, if you want to use it in the show, you, you, you're welcome to. And um, and David Zinn, the designer, had, you know, the costume elements have a particular palette and everything else that, also this jacket's really like heavy wool and I probably would have roasted in it. Um <laughs> But it was really uncanny and a little eerie that I put it on and it fit me like it was, you know, made for me, which is really uh, odd. Um, but just to, to I've I prized all of those gifts and gestures from the various Bechtel family um, because it was it was and is an act of such trust and and confidence and uh and belief that 
that I would um, respect their, you know, their family and their father enough to to deserve to have something like that. So it it meant a great deal to me. Michael Servers, you are a treasure. I am your biggest fan. Thank you. I can't believe I got to interview you twice. I hope we get to do it again. I hope so too. And I can't wait for your show. I'm going to be there. Good, good. I hope I hope everybody will come. It's it's going to be a. I think it's going to be a really beautiful night, and it's certainly not something that's going to happen often. So, thanks again. Bye. Bye. Sickness will surely take the mind. The minds can't usually go. Come on the amazing journey and learn all you should know. You guys, Michael made his never released album that he made with Alice Ripley available for purchase on the website bandcamp.com. The album is called Lame, Live and Unplugged. You can find it by going to bandcamp.com and searching for Lame Band. One word. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Do you wake up humming Hamilton and singing Sondheim? Do you dream of a place where there are Shakespeare flash mobs, Happy Birthday is sung in harmony, and surprise Broadway guests fill your world? At Stage Door Manor, kids from every state and six continents spend their summer totally immersed in the magic of theater. I'm sure almost all of you know that Stage Door Manor is the inspiration for Todd Graff's movie Camp and Mickey Rapkin's book Theater Geek. But did you know that you've seen plenty of their alums on stage, screen, and behind the scenes? Natalie Portman, Mandy Moore, Zach Braff, Robert Downey Jr., Sean Levy, and Janine Tesori all spent their summers in the Catskill Mountains of New York. Stage Door Manor produces an unbelievable 42 full-scale shows in eight on-campus theaters, and there are more than 100 classes at beginning and advanced levels, everything from playwriting to stage combat. If it's theater-related, they do it. Stage Door premieres include original stage versions of Rent, Avenue Q, Andrew Lippa's Wild Party, Woman in White, and High School Musical. Stage Door welcomes kids ages 10 to 18, and there are no auditions for admission. They accept all levels of experience and talent and find roles for students in shows where everyone can have his or her moment in the spotlight. Worth Magazine named Stage Door among the top 10 summer programs in the world, and it's been called the Hollywood High of Summer Camps by Playbill. No wonder sessions fill up quickly. Spots are almost gone for the summer, so hurry and go online to stagedoormanor.com for more info. You guys, a few months ago, on the literal eve of the national tour of The King and I hitting the road and heading for Providence, I sat down with the show's stars, two of our favorite past theater people guests, Jose Lana and Laura Michelle Kelly, to talk about the tour, what they were most excited about, and why they wanted to spend a year on the road in the first place. I'm super excited to finally share this conversation with you, so here it is. Hi. Jose, Lana, Laura, Michelle, Kelly, welcome back, both of you, to the Theatre People Podcast. Thank you. Just want everyone to know that our King and I is going to be very different from anyone else's. We are actually an item in King and I. <laughs> <laughs> we kiss at the end of show. We the dance. level. No one wants to miss it. Um, Laura, Michelle, I have to ask you first. Yeah. Can we just quickly talk just two minutes about saying goodbye to Finding Neverland? I was so, so sad. I still felt like this... Um, big anchor in my heart to the cast when they were rehearsing here the first day of my rehearsals they were the last two days of theirs their tour rehearsal it was so weird oh that my I goodness coincidence is crazy them. it was a yeah. real blessing i felt like i could really like say oh hey i saw the new opening and i thought it was amazing and ah. i got a chance to see 
Kristen and, and Christine and I and Kevin Gunn, who obviously we're going to be friends for life. But, <laughs> but now I really feel like I'm going to be good friends with Christine too. And she, we FaceTimed quite a bit during her tech rehearsals during Buffalo. And uh. she's just having the best time. She's the best person for the job. And um, just very excited that other people get to see it. Yeah. And see them. God, well, we were sad to see it go. I know I was talking to you before we started that all of our people who listen to our podcast are like crazy Finding Neverland fans. And I like, feel like it's <clears> going to <throat> become back. Yeah. It should come back the version that they're evolving to and there's more there's more life in that show and if not then in the revival I shall be the mother (laughs) we're gonna hold you to it um you guys the king and I hi hi Jose yes sir are you ever gonna get tired of doing the king and I not if we keep casting people like Laura Michelle Kelly. <laughs> this is the first the time role. he's ever done it with me. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, this is the best and only time that matters. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if I'm, I'm so lucky and honored that this show right now is kind of like bookending my career. So right, right now, it was the beginning of my, my career, and now I get to take it around the country with this beautiful lady. Um, it's, it's a book beautiful middle. Show. It's, it's a, a book exactly. middle. You're now a real man, and you've got another life to live before yeah. you book end it. Was a boy, now a man. I wanted to ask about the casting. How was it? Who was cast first? Like, I'm just assuming that you guys. Same time, we got the same agent. Oh, really? (laughs) Did was it? Did you know? Did you both know that you were doing it, or did like how did that all work? Both of us were like fighting to decide. (laughs) Right. um, I mean, I mean, because I was involved with it, obviously with the with the New York production, and I think and Bart had given me indication that that the that he was interested in me doing the tour a while ago, a Mm -hmm. while ago. So. Um, yeah, I mean, and it was always curious to like who, who it would be with on the tour. And it was, and you know, since I, since I joined the New York company a year, over a year ago, um, the seed was planted, I yeah. think. So, but I think, uh, once Laura came along and it just was, it, it was like a kind of a dream when I heard it. It was her, when we, actually we, we, we were ah. doing a, a spelling bee <coughs> charity event right. and it was really brilliant. And, and that's and we how met. we met and, and it was so much fun. Exactly. And and you'd said that you think that you may be doing it. Yeah. And um, I actually auditioned once, and <laughs> Bart gave me a really hard time in the, audi- <laughs> in the audition he did. And I thought, oh, this guy's a tiger. Wow. What, for the Broadway company or for the tour? For the tour. I wanted to audition for the Broadway company. Marin got it on an offer. I didn't get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> that was my big chance. Wait, tell me about your audition with Bart. I'm so curious. He gave me a hard time. I was like, oh, he's not enjoying this at all with me. <laughs> The actor in the room was really amazing. And he said, you're not giving him anything. <laughs> wow. I think he was testing me to see if I blew, if I had a temper. I don't really have a temper. I can't imagine and I that. have to be pushed really far. <laughs> That's um, But uh, I didn't actually have the second audition because the Finding Neverland company was celebrating a really, I think it was towards the end of the show. It was celebrating mm-hmm. some big night. And I went out and I couldn't I literally couldn't speak the next day at all for, and that was the it was kind of I hate auditions so it's, I, maybe I did it on purpose but um so I didn't go in for my second audition and I apologized to everybody and I said I'm really sorry and I thought well that, there's that and then they called me at the end of that day and said they're offering it cheap anyway. <laughs> I'm like wow I need to do this again I hate auditions I'm notorious for being bad in them so I'm that's really glad so they just offered it to me that's how I got Finding Neverland they just offered me the workshop and that's how I ended up being able to do that so go. I'm very grateful when I found out Jose was doing it I was so relieved because I'd already met him and he's so sweet and lovely and talented and I same here when I heard of it that you were that you were didn't even it, know yeah. how talented you were though and then we found out this oh, wow. week. 
And then we found out that we have the same agent, so it made it even, even easier at that point. So. <laughs> you guys are so amazing. Are you guys just going to like spend every minute of this tour in each other's dressing rooms? Well, I'm going to be dog-sitting for her a lot. So. I hope so. <laughs> I want to talk about, like, thematically. Wh- Jose, you, mm-hmm. you've been with not just, like, this recent company, but it was your Broadway debut in 96. Mm-hmm. And now it's, you know, this is a show that it's, it's a classic. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about it that, like, thematically, that, like, keeps it coming back around? And then not only does it have a long life on Broadway, but, like, it demands a tour. Well, like, the relevance of the story, I mean, yes, it's set in 1862 in Siam, but the themes of it, of, uh, of different cultures clashing, of, of friendship through differences, and of, of pride in where you come from and, and, and protecting, and actually and, uh, and the theme of ensuring that your children have a life and a, and a culture that they can live on when you go. You know, so there's so many themes that are just will live forever and I think that's why The King and I is, is told every decade in, in, in a fresh new way and especially how Bart has kind of also taken in a much stronger way than past productions he's taken a political angle to, to mm-hmm. the show and, and re, reincorporated a lot of the political themes that kind of were like edited out over the years to sort of focus more on like the happy happy-go-lucky you know family-oriented yeah. part of it um, but I think because Bart always tends to look at that from the political structure and how that affects uh, the relationships in the story. So I think um, it's exciting. That's why every generation that sees The King and I is like, oh, I get it. That just sounds like my family. And to people who at the beginning don't think they have anything in common suddenly find a really deep friendship with each other and, and maybe love with each other. So, yeah. It's, I think what demands a tour is the fact that this show is so spectacular. Yeah. It's so amazing. And you, you're right, but all those, those themes are so important. And I think that's why Rogers and Hammerstein keep getting repeated. It's, it's not a mistake that there keeps right. being a revival of their work because it's incredible. Yeah. It's genius. Yeah. And King and I is definitely up there with one of the, the greatest stories of all time. Mm-hmm. And the way the work, it's, the dialogue's incredible, the, the writing's just... And I'm, what I'm, I'm always looking forward to is that even, I mean, I experienced it 20 years ago when I did it in my, in my other production, to see families come and to, to talk to the mothers who are middle-aged, tell me that it's their favorite musical because it was their grandmother's favorite musical. Uh. And now they're bringing their kids and hopefully it'll be their favorite musical. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and to, to see this pass through the generations of a story that was written over 50 years ago is just really powerful. Mm. Yeah. It makes your imagination come alive to watch a musical. And I think mm-hmm. this is definitely, if there's ever a version of King and I you ever want to know you were at, it would be this version. Yeah. And I, we're, we're definitely taking all the beautiful things about the Lincoln Center production and everyone in the state should see that not everyone can come to New York right mm-hmm. um, but they can go to their their you know their big theater in their big city and right. um, take their family and, and see a taste of what we get what we do on Broadway how involved would you guys be I don't know if you know the answer to this question but do you on a tour like this do you tend to like do all the morning shows and then like talk, do talk backs and talk to the kids at school like, is that something you're planning on doing is that something you like to do I'm gonna. We're gonna, we're gonna definitely try. try. Both yeah. of us have got big hearts, I think, with that <laughs> think sort of so. stuff. But it's also very challenging. These roles. We'll do yeah. everything we can. I think. I mean, I think that's that's definitely that uh, they're with full intention, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's great press for the show for us to do that and uh, the outreach. Um, but like like Laura just said, that it's a very taxing. Both parts are very taxing vocally and physically, you know. Um, but we'll, 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 we'll try. We'll do the breakfast programs for sure. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do those news, you know, early news. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, I, if, as, if I remember from my Lunta days, 
Um, <clears throat> uh, we have some beautiful other supporting players in the show that if we can't do a press event, I'm sure yeah. they'll be happy to take over. You know. I, you know that we'll be the ones, <laughs> right? You know it. That knock on the door at I, eight o'clock. Uh, morning television. I want going. to do. I tell you what, my dream is. I want to do a food program in every city. <laughs> I want to make food on television we'll in every city. I'm together. obsessed. I love Jenna's that. Kitchen. I love food programs. I, I wanted to ask you specifically. <coughs> you you're, you guys are going to like some incredible cities, like yeah. Miami, Chicago. That was another reason why it's a good idea to take this excellent show. I yeah, wanted to yeah, ask yeah. you, like, have you seen those cities in our country? Are you no. which ones are you really excited to go to? I did do a bus tour once. Where I you did? Lived, uh, yeah, I lived on a bus and I like performing or just for fun. Just with a band friends band of my friends band um, wow. and uh, I ended up going to each city and didn't see it at all like oh, I'd see the yeah. venue and then, but so I am excited to go to all these places and we're actually sitting down in San Francisco and LA. Seattle I, um, I love LA I used to live there and I'm excited to go back there sunshine in the winter <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when are you guys in Boston I'm, I'm from there I'm uh, nervous I'm scared February. Yeah. February February yeah bring a parka <laughs> bring a parka <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm most excited too. Is it cold too. in February? In Boston, Very so Boston cold. is such a beautiful, gorgeous, amazing city. The arts in Boston take that is incredible. Week off on holiday, but it's freezing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not. We don't get holidays. This is theatre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I going to ask you? I guess just like like lastly, like what you guys are both such big, like established Broadway stars. Thank you. What? <laughs> Isn't that really? wonderful? To but hear it's me. true. What makes you want to do a tour at this point? I mean, you probably like. I can't. Like, what? What makes you want to? go out of town why don't why wouldn't we want to yeah <laughs> we get I mean, to take this amazing production yeah. to a different families all around i mean it's a gift to do what we do anyway right. i guess there has to be some incentives to why we'd want to up roots and leave our loved ones on our right. nest yeah. in new york city living, um, out of, living out of a suitcase in a gondola for yeah. you know? <laughs> but yeah. i think that's I've true been watching um Okay, I have to tell you that story in a minute. Um, <laughs> but let's go back to what you just asked. What makes us want to do it? Bart Shear is an incredible director. Yeah. And I just for working with him for these four, we're going to work with him for six weeks. I would do 10 months of work for him that yeah. I didn't even want to do. That's, yeah. But I want to do this production. I felt like I've it was grown perfect. as an actor just <gasps> working with you and Bart for the past four, week, four weeks. I, I really have. not much from me, but Bart. No, no, because <laughs> like it's, and that's honestly like so much about accepting a job. You know, in my in in my old age, I've I've really realized <laughs> that it's it's about am I going to take this job so I can learn something not only about myself but become a better artist, be become a better actor, and yeah. that's what taking this tour was the opportunity to work with Laura, the opportunity to work with Bart in this really intense way, and to take such a beautiful show, this production with every element in it. Um, just I mean, this week, this past week, we've been running the show constantly both Bart and Ted Sperling have mentioned just how tight our dancers are. Yeah. How incredibly, uh, like how incredible they are and how, how much just in the past four weeks of them working together, they, we've had, we've got a really fantastic dancing ensemble and just to bring that around the country is a gift. It's a real gift. And I think that's what led me to, uh, I cried my eyes out watching the ballet for the first mm-hmm. time. Yeah. It, I was so moved at how exceptional they were. Yeah. At their art. Incredible. Incredible. And I, the same thing happened last night when I watched The Great Comet. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's one song that someone with sick Brit was singing about um, a friend's love, a love for a friend. Uh, what we do is so astounding. I had a perspective on my life that I never had when I walked in. Hmm. Yeah. 
And that's what we want to give to everybody. Yeah. And I think we do that with this show. Mm-hmm. And we also elevate people's imaginations and see what's possible. Right. To see another human being do something that looks impossible, that should be impossible, is, is quite something. Can I, can I add something selfishly <laughs> from my perspective? Um, just from, a, from the perspective of an Asian-American actor yeah. uh, in America, this show was born in a time when finding enough act Asian American actors to cast the show was very difficult, if not impossible. And through the, the 60 plus years that it's been in existence, it's gotten easier and easier. And now to take this tour around the country with a, a cast of almost entirely Asian American actors, um, I find real pride in that. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I think people got so used to a King that's like kind of foreign looking. And <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's Asian. Yeah. I don't know. But now to do to to send this tour out without an Asian American actor, it would create negative press, and I'm proud of that. And I'm yeah. proud that, that we have come to a point in this country where you can make a story about an Asian culture and actually cast Asian Americans in it. And so that's part of my selfish reasons also to send the show out. Yes, Jose Lana, yeah. I, you guys have been. So I just want to say the two of you have been on the podcast before. Both of your episodes were so special and mm-hmm. so incredible, and people like write us and tweet us about them all the time. So I just love you guys so much. Well, best so of exciting. luck, you guys. Are you, am I allowed to say that? Can you, you say yeah. best of luck? Yeah, you can say anything. I'm not superstitious. Oh, you're not. Okay, Are you? I'm only superstitious about like silly things, but not really. I mean. If I have like if I have a great show, I'll try to remember what I had for breakfast that day. No. Then... <laughs> well, oh no, OCD starts now. Uh, no. Well, maybe we'll check in with you guys on the road. Can we Please. do a call in? That would be oh, so fun. Be great. I love you guys. All right, All right. bye. Bye. I have dreamed that your arms are lovely. You can find all the stops on the tour and purchase tickets at kingandiTour.com. You guys, I wanted to take a quick second and let you know that we are releasing our 100th episode on Wednesday. The episode was recorded live at BroadwayCon and features Kayala Settle, Celia and Andrew Keenan-Bolger, Daisy Egan, and Beth Malone. We are, at the time of this recording, about $100 shy of our Patreon goal. I would be over the moon if we could possibly meet that goal by the time our 100th episode goes live. If you're loving Theater People, Broadway Backstory, or BroadwayCon the podcast, we'd be super grateful for your support. You can contribute as little as $1 per month and get amazing rewards for doing so. You can go to patreon.com and search for Theater People Podcast or click the link on our website, which is theaterpeople.com. And that, of course, is theater with an E-R-P-P-L.com. Theater People is a product of Theater Podcast Productions and is produced by Mike Jensen and me, Patrick Hines. I edited this episode. Special thanks to our sponsor, Stage Door Manor. Check them out at stagedoormanor.com. Special thanks also to Steve Tipton, Eric Emsch, Keith Allen Herzog, our Patreon associate producers, Robbie Roselle, Ty Williams, and Cynthia Wallach, and to Ellen Marsh and the staff at Oswald's. We'll see you on Wednesday for the release of our 100th episode. Until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. Yeah.